0: Up next, the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop after this message. Now that doctors and patients have discovered the many benefits of hemp-derived CBD, Alpine Miracle's Nano Emulsion CBD formula is one of the most bioavailable on the market today. It's 100% THC-free, so you can order it online anywhere in the U.S. Order yours today at alpinemiracle.com. Scientists are just beginning to understand its essential role in maintaining optimal health. Get yours today. Use the code reporter and receive 10% off. Don't wait. Get it now at alpinemiracle.com.
1: Hi, and welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm Snowden Bishop, and I'm glad that you joined me today. I don't know about you, but I can't recall ever being faced with such polarizing choices in an election. Being subjected to such divisive campaign rhetoric, it seems aimed to just turn us against one another. The most consequential problems we face aren't exclusive to one party or another and can't be solved until we transcend the bitter tribalism and come together as Americans. That won't happen unless we find enough common ground to bridge the gaps between us and instead focus on issues that can unite us with a common purpose and finding solutions to problems that we have in common. Despite our differences, nearly everyone shares similar goals. I mean, who doesn't want to live a healthy, sustainable life and achieve the American dream? How we get there is often where we part ways politically. Our founding fathers established a broad framework of democracy intended to preserve a balance of power and government and protect our inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. While the authors might have had noble intentions based on conventional wisdom at the time, the liberties granted under the Constitution were limited to Anglo men, to the exclusion of women, Native Americans, and slaves of African descent. Over time, amendments have managed to equalize protection under the law, but not without a great deal of sacrifice. Over the last 50 years, laws have become more and more inclusive thanks to the tireless activism that's led to Congressional measures and Supreme Court precedents, barring discrimination on the basis of race, religion, disabilities, age, gender, sexual preference, and political persuasions. But despite the progress, an underpinning of racism and cultural bias still influences nearly every aspect of American life. Nowhere is this more evident than in our criminal justice system. It really is no accident that Prohibition disproportionately targeted minorities. Several decades after the racially charged Reefer Madness campaign demonized marijuana, the War on Drugs originated as Nixon's nefarious plot to suppress left-leaning votes by enacting the Controlled Substances Act. Since then, more than 22 million people have been incarcerated for non-violent marijuana offenses. Whereas white people were as likely as people of color to use illicit marijuana, minorities were four times more likely to go to prison. Even now that most states have either decriminalized or legalized cannabis, minorities are still being targeted and comprise the majority of marijuana offenders still serving time even in states where marijuana is legal. That's the topic of today's show, and something our guest is working to change. Bonita Money began her career working behind the scenes in Hollywood, and she has since worked with some of the biggest names in the film industry. Despite having success as a young, up-and-coming actor and producer, she constantly encountered barriers that are common to women and minorities. After entering the cannabis industry, she experienced some of the same barriers that she encountered in the film business. But when the legal complexities of the emerging industry presented new challenges, she also discovered her own talent for making connections. She has since co founded Women Above Ground, a networking organization that opens doors for women of color aspiring to become cannabis entrepreneurs. And provides the resources and connections necessary for them to navigate the tricky legal cannabis market. She's also co founder of Indica, which provides resources and connections for people who've been incarcerated for marijuana offenses and helps them find work in the cannabis industry. Benita, thank you so much for joining me. I'm really eager to delve into this topic with you, and so I appreciate your being here.
2: Thank you for having me
1: honored. You're certainly welcome. You know, I'm really curious to ask you about women above ground. But before I do that, as I was mentioning in the opening, the entire prohibition movement early on was race based, as was the Controlled Substances Act back in the 1970s. And since then, it's really had such a horrible impact on low income communities and people of color. And so, when you started working in cannabis to bring people of color into this movement, you're also working toward getting records expunged. Tell me how you started. Well, when I first got
2: into the cannabis industry, um, well, first of all, I come from the TV and film industry. That's been my career for 25 years and went into cannabis about four years ago. And so, I was really looking to find my, I would say, I would say my passion, my position, um, my space in this industry. Um, didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I knew that I wanted to be in this industry. So, going to conferences and networking with, you know, other canopanores and and people that were just, you know, curious about cannabis as well. I just found that there were very few people that looked like me. And there was not people of color that were in the industry in any major way. But yet people of color have been imprisoned because of this plant for years, decades. And ultimately there's there's still a lot of people of color that are in prison that are paying for the paying the price for the war on drugs because of I would say the targeting of the communities of color. So ultimately this is why I just felt that when I started Women Above Ground, that there needs to be a platform for women of color to be able to network to find resources to get educated you know just to get into the into the industry.
1: You know, I admire that because I think that there is still a disparity in the criminal justice system and I know that a lot of records have been expunged but just not enough and it's really taken a toll I think on those communities and Ruined lives in general, so it's it's really encouraging to know that you're out there doing this and tell me about women above ground because that's also fascinating.
2: Well women above ground basically again is is a networking organization that basically empowers women of color to enter into the cannabis industry, and you know we provide resources, education, networking um, and it's just something that Again, very few women of color can find out there. I know that when I first got in the industry, it was just non-existent. So it was something that was needed. And then also, I don't know if you know about my other organization, but I have Indica, which is the National Diversity and Inclusion Cannabis Alliance. So it's N-D-I-C-A. And we do pretty much the same thing, but it's a a broader-based organization. So we work with just people of color, social equity, social justice, and that's where all the expungement clinics come in is because ultimately there's over 200,000 um, people in just LA alone that would qualify for cannabis expungement. And it's amazing how they don't really take advantage of these free expungement clinics because I think a lot of them are just afraid to come out. Um, and that just happened yesterday at one of our clinics that um, because we, were, we did it at a college that was close to a police station, they basically people felt that it was a setup and didn't want to come down so it was you know it's quite interesting to uh see how fearful people of color are of law enforcement
1: yeah well and rightly so i would think you know there's a history there that can't be ignored obviously but And so at these expungement clinics, you're basically explaining to them, and you have people from the legal community as well who are explaining to people how to go about applying to get their records expunged. Is that how that works?
2: Well, we are partners with LARP, which is Los Angeles Regional Reentry Partnership, and also the LA County Public Defender's Office. So the Public Defender's Office, they actually provide all the attorneys from their their um, office so there's volunteers that come in over like 20 attorneys and probably over like 10 paralegals from their office that comes in and volunteers and donates their time to do all this so they pull all the records right there you know at the um clinics and then they do all the paperwork and a lot of a lot of the cannabis convictions under prop 64 are just are just basically automatically dropped, So they don't really have to go through the process like under process 47 where um, those have to be filed and then there's a process through the court. So with the Prop 64, which is awesome, those are just pretty much automatically dropped.
1: That's fantastic. And then those who do have a record, are they also allowed to enter the business on a professional level?
2: Absolutely. Well, uh, LA County, well, I'm sorry, not the county, LA City specifically, we have a social equity plan. So what that means is that if you come from a specific zip code that was basically targeted and impacted by the war on drugs, then you would qualify um, for as a social equity applicant. So the qualifications would be under tier one would be low income, a cannabis conviction, and also coming from the zip codes, And that would give you priority for a retail license.
1: Right. Well, that's that's pretty exciting for people. I mean, you know, one of the things that is a problem in in a lot of these states when they pass the laws, they they insist that people entering the business or applying for licenses have to have a clean record, which you know, is is really sad for people who who were in the underground cannabis movement mm-hmm. and, you know, imprisoned for it, which is really quite a shame. But I'm hoping that states are beginning to realize the value and having people who do have prior experience in cannabis entering the business and going about expunging these records. And I think California is more progressive than most states when it comes to this sort of thing. Anyway, kudos to you for doing this. And when I first learned about you, it was actually through a business partner of mine. We're working on a follow-up to The Hempsters Plant the Seed in a new documentary series, Diana Oliver, and she couldn't have said higher things about you. But she mentioned to me that you have quite a story to tell, and as we were talking, she said, "Be sure to ask Benita about the woman in her life who inspired her, because it's a fascinating story." And she didn't tell me what it was, but my curiosity is completely piqued. And if you're comfortable talking about it, I'd love to hear it. I think what
2: she's talking about is I have a topical cream called That Glass Jar, and it's a cannabis cream that cured the MRSA, bacteria, well, it killed the MRSA bacteria. And it was my girlfriend Princess Inga that was dying of MRSA, and so basically that was i think just that whole situation and the the cannabis saving her life was i think the turning point for me which made me to say that you know i was all in and really changed all of our lives so i think that's what
1: you 're talked about you know what i read about that as i was doing a little bit of homework it was incredible because she actually had MRSA. Is that the MRSA? Is it a virus or is it an infection?
2: MRSA is the, yeah, it's a bacterial infection that's um, it's not treatable or curable with any type of pharmaceuticals, um, No antibiotics. It's a superbug, basically.
1: Right. And it, it was from a surgery. Yeah. Yeah. And online, there were actually photographs of the difference from when the infection was in full swing to after using, it looked like it was a cannabis-based product with coconut oil and other botanicals. And it was astonishing to see that within like, what, weeks, the infection was completely gone and the skin was healing. And that is a fascinating story. So she was a close friend of yours.
2: Yeah, she's like one of my best friends, absolutely. And after 54 days of conventional treatment with, you know, vancomycin and you know, thirty thousand dollars later, because the treatment is that expensive. It's an intravenous, um, it's an intravenous um, treatment with the antibiotic, and it just killed her system. And basically, um, it was not working at all. And so they kept cutting away at the infected area. It just kept coming back, and it was just at, it was at a point where the doctor said, "Look, either we amputate the area, or you're going to die." Because going, you know, it, at that point, it went into her blood. So. That's when she was like, you know what, I'm not amputating. Nope, I'm not. And just went home to write her will and started researching, you know, and looked for alternate ways to work with MRSA. And she saw that cannabis could possibly work. And she called me because at that point I was making oils. So I'd never worked on a topical. And so ultimately I had a girlfriend that was making, um, she's making topicals in Maine. And so I her what was in hers, because through my research, I found that there was other organic extracts. That would be very key to being like natural antibiotics and natural antibacterials. So I needed to infuse all of those into a cream, and so which I did. And then I made her an oil, which she could ingest, and that would work with the blood. And yeah, it uh, basically killed the infection in about six days.
1: That is absolutely astonishing. And we've talked a lot about how cannabis topicals can really improve skin quality and help conditions like eczema. but one of the things I wasn't aware of was that it could be used also for infections. So that is fascinating. And are you going to be making this oil available to the public? Are you in the process of developing a product?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much developed. I mean, and I've treated like numerous patients since, since that, um, you know, since that miracle happened. And but I basically stopped like Putting it out there just because when you know the government just basically took the patent on CBDs and we couldn't use it on labeling and all that, I just you know I just had to rebrand. So that's what we're in the process of doing now.
1: Yeah. Well, and how is she doing now? Oh, she's yeah, she's great. She's alive. <laughs> That's what counts. <laughs> it's an incredible thing to see when, when people who have really experienced a lack of healing through conventional pharmaceuticals and when they go to cannabis, it's incredible. People can heal for the first time. So what's next for you now? What are you working on currently? Well, my focus right now, which is, it's been for the last probably
2: six months, has just been the L.A. Social Equity Plan and and also... Trying to move the social equity plan into other states and cities because we're the only state that has a true social equity plan. So and we and and actually Jerry Brown just signed um, the bill to make to create a state social um, equity plan, which um, Senator Stephen Bradford he authored and got that passed, and it, it actually has funding. So we have 10 million dollars in funding for it too. So that's huge for us because with the Social Equity Plan, we only had them in four cities, which is L.A., Oakland, San Francisco, and Sacramento. And, and so what that means, just so that the, the, audience, the audience can be clear, is the Social Equity Plan means that for every one general license that's issued for retail, which would mean dispensaries, there has to be two issued to people that qualify as a Social Equity applicant. So again, the majority of those licenses will be held by people of color.
1: Wow. Which is a game changer. <laughs> That's fantastic. And what about the other cities in California? Can people from elsewhere come into the city and apply for any of these licenses? Or must they be residents in those cities specifically?
2: Yeah, you had to have lived in those cities because, again, it's for the people that and
1: the communities that were impacted by the
2: war on drugs. So there's specific zip codes that you have to come from in order to qualify.
1: Okay. Well, that completely makes sense. And are you taking this to the state level first before trying to expand out into other states?
2: The thing about it is, though, is that on a state level, yes, but if the, if their city does not have ordinances for cannabis, it wouldn't matter anyway because they couldn't, you know, if you can't apply on a city level, then the state won't approve you as well. So you have to have come from cities that actually have cannabis ordinances.
1: Right. And through California, with a statewide program like this, it didn't cross my mind that there are cities that are still not implementing the regulation within their city limits. Right. I didn't realize that. That's interesting, something I need to look into for sure. But I think that it's going to be a bit challenging in some of the other states to bring this program in because they're just not nearly as open as California is to social equity programs, have you run up against any roadblocks there? Oh, absolutely. And the thing about it is, it's just because in California, we have been
2: medicinally legal for 22 years, where other states were never legal at all. So a lot of states are just, you know, basically taking baby steps, because now they're just trying to figure out how they're going to move forward on the, you know, just on the medicinal level. Yeah. So they're basically where we were 22 years ago. So for them, yeah, just a social equity plan to be implemented would be awesome in the beginning because that's what they need versus them just starting to issue licenses and not really think, think about that social equity piece.
1: Well, I know in our state, for example, we're in, in Arizona, and it seems that every step of the way since the medical law was implemented, there are certain people in certain counties that are fighting it tooth and nail, and I still just don't get it. I mean, it, it they're making life very difficult for a lot of people. And I mean, and even patients being prosecuted for having tinctures. And that's a whole other story that we've been following really closely. And it's just, it's insane. And and people going to jail, card-carrying patients going to jail for having cannabis that they purchased in a dispensary is just incredibly unjust. And it's all about trying to paint patients, and especially patients of color, some of the most egregious Problems that we have are where people of color have been prosecuted, and we just had a case, the Jones case, which went to the Arizona Appellate Court, and his his plea to get a conviction for having hashish in his car that he purchased at a dispensary, having that overturned, failed in the Appellate Court, and they're taking it to the Arizona Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And it'll be interesting to see what happened, but they basically sent him back to jail to complete a three-year sentence. So he had another two years left on his conviction, which is just such a shame. And he has to remain in prison while the case is being appealed, and who knows how long it'll take. And I hear about these things, and it makes my blood boil because it's, it is so unjust, and, you um, know, yeah. the whole war on drugs really is steeped in racism. And it's very frustrating to just see how it's it's continuing still to this day. <laughs> well, even
2: more so now that, that we've gone recreational legal, it's like it's going to be the new war on drugs. You know, under Prop 215, which was our medicinal um, regulations for and bill for California, um, it was. A lot of a lot of these things were in the gray area. So law enforcement, they weren't so clear on, you know, who to arrest, what for, you know, just things like that. You know, can you smoke in your car? I don't know. You know, it was that kind of thing. So, but now it's very clear. You know, there's no consumption in the car, no consumption like like in Vegas, no consumption anywhere but your home. And the problem with that is 80% of I would say the consumers there would be tourists. So the minute they walk out of the dispensary, they are Doing an illegal activity because so where are they going to smoke? They can't smoke in a hotel. They're not supposed to smoke on the streets, on the car, but they're, they're consuming. So things like that weren't well thought out, you know, when they were like, you know, writing these bills. And so, you know, those things we need to fix because it's just not okay that it gives law enforcement the upper hand to just kind of arrest when they want to and pick and choose who they want to arrest. You know, just like in Colorado when they went legal, um, the arrest for people of color went. went up 20%. So we're trying to obtain that data now to see, since our legalization, has that happened? You know, has the number of people of color, uh, the arrest for people of color, has that risen?
1: That's an interesting statistic. I didn't realize that. And yeah, that'll be interesting to find out if that's happening in California as well. Mm-hmm. But also California kind of pulled a fast one too because of the illegality of CBD ever since the Department of Justice created a separate identifying code for CBD within schedule 1 so that it was separated out from cannabis which makes complete, it makes no sense whatsoever why they would do that but But what it did is that it created this ambiguity in the law that that made it impossible for people to ascertain whether or not, you know, selling CBD by itself was actually a legal thing when these laws, even California, which thought about everything, they never mentioned cannabidiol or CBD in the law. So therefore selling CBD by itself as a food substance, they, they sent out a notice saying that this was no longer going to be legal. So I need to find out whether or not they've reversed that, but it was based on you know, a court case, the, the Ninth Circuit reversed their ruling on legal hemp. Uh, food substances because of the CBD labeling in Schedule 1 on the federal level. So it's just created so much confusion. And California is probably the biggest market for hemp-derived CBD. And when California put this notice out, they didn't include CBD that was naturally occurring in THC-laced cannabis that's for sale in edibles, for example. But just CBD, uh, theoretically from hemp, that is added to food substances in edibles and and beverages and all of that. So there is so much confusion. And just because they weren't specific enough, it it kind of goes back to that adage, be careful what you wish for. You have to be very specific because if you're not specific enough, what you're wishing for might come true, but you might not have thought of something. Oh, yeah, exactly. That's it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It really is. And, you know, when you go back in time, too, and consider that on the diversity front, which I really, I think it's so important for people to understand that prohibition, the war on drugs, has so disproportionately affected communities of color. For every 10 people arrested, most of them are people of color and or people from low income backgrounds. So this work that you're doing, it really is incredibly important. And I think too that shedding a spotlight on it, and especially when you have public figures that are coming out and talking about it as well, I think that it is going to start influencing policy in places where they don't yet have any cannabis regulation. Who are some of the public figures that you're working with right now in trying to get this message out?
2: Well, someone who was very, who was very instrumental um, when I first started in the industry was Marvin Washington, the ex-NFL player that has the ISO sports line. Um, he was one of my diversity panel members, so we'd speak at conferences together. And then Montel Williams, he was very, very supportive and instrumental in Getting Women Above Ground some like national attention because he went on ABC and spoke about my, my, one of my signature events for Women Above, women above Ground is Canacool Lounge. And so he actually launched, he did a soft launch at my event for his brand, which is Lenitiv Labs. And then he went on ABC and just said that there need to be more organizations like women, women Above Ground that was supporting people of color you know, that were coming into the cannabis industry or trying to come into the cannabis industry because there were so many barriers that were put up, you know, and again, because of the war on drugs, you know, we have a lot of brown and black men that are in prison because of this. And now you have, you know, the the men and, you know, these corporate suits and the white men they are now controlling the industry. And it's just not okay. You know, it's a billion-dollar industry that soon will be a trillion-dollar industry. And you have people that now cannot participate because uh, these are their criminal records or because they're in prison. So things like that, you know, we need to address and we need to make change. You know, we need to, versus just talking about it, we need to, again, you know, we have to um, rectify all this that has happened to these people. So, um, and then I work with, I have a lot of like celebrity brands I work with, like Yuck Mouse and the Loonies. Um, I'm working with also Project Pat, who's um, part of Three Six Mafia, and then uh, Cece Penniston, and let's see, Dana Dane, the uh, rapper. Um, oh, there's so many that, yeah, oh yeah, Hope Flood, comedian Hope Flood. So, I mean, right now, um, you know, it's, I think it's just the time that, you know, people of color, just really start supporting each other and working together as well. Um, cause I also have a black owned social equity hemp farm in Wisconsin. And I just spoke at the black farmers national conference, um, two weeks ago. And I was able to meet a lot of urban farmers, you know, black urban farmers and, and black rural farmers that ultimately ultimately have this land. And now with the, the farm bill, the hemp bill, we can now, you know, grow hemp, and they should take advantage of that. But they just don't have the knowledge of of what to do. And so that's what I did a workshop on, was to basically assist them in, in coming into the industry, you know, now versus, you know, missing the boat.
1: And how tough is it for them to find financing to do this? Because I know in addition to not really knowing what to do or how to go about it, I imagine that funding a new startup hemp farm is not an inexpensive proposition. Um, I mean, is there funding available?
2: There is, but it's very limited. And this is why we're trying to create incubators. We're trying to create funding through um, different sources of you know, investment. Um, it's, you know, it's, but it's there. And, it, and right now it's becoming even uh, more accessible. So um, we are finding that, um, but again, it's not enough. You know, if you, if you had like a cannabis cultivator, um, a white cannabis cultivator, and no, a black cannabis cultivator, trust me, the white cannabis cultivator, even though he was like less proficient, he would get funding before someone who was a master grower that had better, you know, that was a better cultivator, um, but was black, he would not, yeah, trust me, he would not be the one that they would choose to fund first.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that's Yeah, it is unfortunate. And I think that's probably true across the board. I'm glad to hear that that Marvin Washington is involved with what you're doing, too. He's such an incredible spokesperson. We've had him on the show um, several times. And I spoke with him recently. And he's working on the US Supreme Court case right now to end the prohibition on patients carrying cannabis across state lines. And I'm really anxious to see how that pans out, but he's an incredible spokesperson as is Montel and we'll be speaking with him in, in the coming weeks. We've uh, probably in, in next week sometime we're going to be interviewing him. He's very involved in uh, his brand is incredible. His story with multiple sclerosis is incredible and inspiring so I'm really glad to see that there are so many sports figures and you know people who have a presence in public speaking out on this issue because I think it really is helping to shape policy and the more public figures that come out and talk about it, you know and just in the couple of years that I've been doing this, I've seen a lot more openness to speaking out for so long there people were you know, they felt like they had reputations to protect and especially political figures. Um, and yeah, even if they advocated in private, coming out and speaking about it was still difficult. In fact, I've run into that on a... feel that, that way. Yeah, I've run into that just recently. I mean, there are people running for office who I know are advocates, but they're just not talking about it. And it's pretty interesting. And um, I went to a rally the other day with Bernie Sanders, speaking on behalf of David Garcia, who's running for governor here in the state of Arizona. And it was really interesting that Bernie was very outspoken about legalizing cannabis, whereas David Garcia was still a little bit shy, and possibly rightly so, because he's running in a state that is fighting the medical law, tooth and nail. But I just thought it was really interesting, and how difficult it is, even with all we know right now. It's a
2: lot of hard work, that's for sure. you know and it's, and it's going to be that. I mean, you know we're far from even, you know, just evening out the, the playing field here. So, you know, cause again, you know, we have so many issues state to state with social equity, social justice. And so, I mean, as hard as it, it's been here, I can, I, you know, I know what the fight is gonna be in other states. So, but we're prepared, we're ready, we're, and we're excited to, um, you know, have these conversations, you know, with the, the right politicians in those states. So we've been, you know, we've been approached by different uh, different House representatives and senators from different states to help them shape their social equity building.
1: I think social equity and criminal justice reform is such a hot topic right now, too. Even outside of cannabis, and oh yeah, exactly. I, it just seems that there's sort of an underpinning of racism that's creeping up from uh, under the shadows. For so long, it just was not socially correct or politically correct to make racism a blatant outward manifestation on a political level. And it's been astonishing to me to see the amount of racism that is creeping into our political discourse and in our social discourse and and even just the hate-mongering that for so long was just... Uh, It it just seemed like it was unheard of for quite a while in in high-profile public settings. And now there are even, you know, as we've seen in some of the special elections, racism was just a a huge part of it. And we're seeing now, like in in Georgia, for example, the governor's race, the voter suppression that's going on right now is just astonishing and how people can actually get away with that despite the court battles that have been fought and won in favor of abolishing these practices, and yet they're still coming up. And it just seems like there's a new permission to make racism a part of political discourse. What are your feelings on that? I agree. No, absolutely. And I just think it's, it's, you know, unfortunately,
2: it's the, you know, it's who's it's the person that is leading our country right now, um, and shouldn't be that is really creating even more racial tension and more racism. So, you know, ultimately, um and it's and it's gonna continue and it's gonna get worse. I mean, see what happened, I guess, yesterday with the shooting in um Pittsburgh. I mean, and it's just again, you know, we have you know, a leader that is, that shouldn't be a leader. And ultimately, this is, again, um, affecting what's happening, you know, in our country. So uh, racism is not going to get better anytime soon, that's for sure. You know, so ultimately, um, I'm just hoping that, you know, we can protect our cannabis, you know, at this point. I mean, that's my work right now. And that's what I need to be focused on, <laughs> you know, but, you know, it's definitely, it's, uh, it's something that Again, with social justice and and reform at this point needs to happen. And we do a lot of that work. We do a lot of reentry work. You know, we just worked on a major voter drive, and then also um, we do a lot of like um, housing and employment assistance things like that that people have to deal with when they come out of prison. You know, because of course they're going to be discriminated against because they do have a criminal record, which is really to me unconstitutional because you know you've paid your you've paid your dues. And now you should be able to come out and get, be able to get housing, you know, she and, and get a job, you know, be able to support yourself, you know, and, you know, if they're not, if they're not able to get those basic, those basic needs and those basic, just, I would say, not even privileges, but just basic things that they should have as a human being, then, you know, then that's going to affect, you know, recidivism. So that's a big issue. So you see so many people that they go back to prison because of the fact that they can't find jobs. Um, you know, No one will hire them because of their criminal records and no one will give them housing, you know, which I just, I just find ridiculous um, because how are these people supposed to um, be, I would say, productive citizens when they don't even have the basics? So again, with expungement clinics, that assists so much in just assisting them and just having normal lives. So, you know, I just got a call the other day, and a gentleman was saying, and he was a Latino guy, and he says, you know, you know, I've been trying to get my record expunged for years. I had, you know, I've hired attorneys. I just can't get the right help. Um, you know, and I just, you know, and I don't know why, but I told him to come in and, you know, see us so that we can assist him. But he said it's been affecting, you know, his um, employment, housing, everything. And, you know, so... You know, so these kind of things, I just it hurts my heart to hear because these, you know, you have people that really want to do the right thing, but again, there's so many barriers for them just to to just live a a decent life because they can't have the basics. So yeah, these are things that we have to work on.
1: Yeah, because it's been a vicious cycle for so long, and. I can't help but think of conversations in the Nixon tapes. Mm -hmm. You know, the deliberate elimination of communities of color from the voter pool because they were on the more liberal front and threatened the president at that time. And yeah, so it is such a vicious cycle. But as we know, the cannabis industry started out of racism, even back as far as 1937 with the Reefer Madness campaign. Here we are in 2018 and as ironies go cannabis could be the catalyst for ending the racism that is part of it. Mm-hmm. I can't help but feel that cannabis really is one of those issues that can save so many aspects of our society from environmental to the social justice to the, you know, transforming medicine and and creating a cleaner better way for people to heal themselves without addiction and the economy and all of the opportunity that it provides to people, you know, in a billion dollar, soon to be trillion dollar industry, as you said. So it's very interesting to me. And it is ironic if cannabis can sort of lead the way and paving the way for a more equitable criminal justice system and help to lift people out of that cycle of not able to get jobs or housing or or even vote in some states when they get out because they're being discriminated against. So it's important work. It's very important work. So you know, kudos to you for doing this. I mean, thank you. You're certainly welcome. So, is there anything else that you have a burning desire for people to know about you or about the work that you're doing? And you know, are you are you looking for volunteers? Are you looking for more people to assist in what you're doing? Oh yeah, we're always looking for
2: volunteers. Um, we also have an internship program. So um, we and it's just not with my organization. We have paid internships with different um, dispensary partners, cultivation partners. So what we do, it's very important for phase three, which is going to be the retail licensing for LA. So we want these applicants to be truly prepared, you know, so that they will know how to own and operate a retail business. You know, a dispensary is not any different from the liquor store, So they're just going to have to stay in compliance, you know, know what the the ordinance, the ordinance ordinances, the regulations are. They're going to have to, you know, basically know how to run a day-to-day, you know, run or just know how, the day-to-day operations of a dispensary work. And that's why we put them in these, you know, dispensaries or cultivation centers so they can learn that um, because there are a few variables, of course, like banking issues, you know, things like that. So they don't have to, they have to know how to work around that, but just being really just knowledgeable about running a business, um, basic accounting, because, you know, of course they're going to have partners and investors. And so they need to be aware that ultimately, You know, they have to educate themselves. You know, if they don't already know, if they haven't run a dispenser already, because there are are some applicants that were underground operators. So, you know, of course they know how to do business, but, you know, in that illegal market. So we just want them to understand that compliance is very key to staying in business. And so those are the things that we give them opportunity to learn, you know, which um, I don't know um, any other programs out there that are doing this as um, I would say broad as we are, um, and we also have an educational platform that they're required to take if they want us to guide them and assist them, you know, and give them the technical assistance with their applications because that's another thing we help with. So, you know, if there's any people that qualify for the social equity plan, then we definitely would like to hear from them and we'd like to assist them. So um, I would definitely like people to reach out if they're looking just to join an organization that could assist them in resources, networking, education, anything like that. Um, I have a lot of experts on my board. So, you know, we also have a mentorship program. So anything like that that people are looking for, we would definitely like to, you know, um, welcome them. So they can go to my website, which is www n d i c a dot org. So Indica is not with an I. So a lot of people think it's like Indica the
1: strain, but it's just N D I C A. So it's the Indica dot org. And when I was looking at the acronym, I didn't put two and two together. It's interesting that when you say it as a word, it is Indica. I'm sure that that wasn't by accident. Yeah, well, it kind of was. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's great. But
2: and they can just go to our website. We have free memberships as well as like business memberships. You know, so, um, you know, but we want to make it accessible to everybody. And that's why we created a starter membership, because a lot of these organizations, they charge so much money for people to get involved, and they really don't get any benefits, you know, and we don't want to be that group. You know, we we want to be very effective. We want to make sure that, you know, we create a very equitable environment, you know, for our our, our members.
1: And then as far as the legal resources, too, you're relying on the public defender's office, I heard you say a little earlier, and then are you looking for private attorneys as well to become involved and donate time?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, we've worked with private attorneys as well. Um, The thing about it is, is that with the public defender's office, it's just it, it's such a great partnership because they make everything so simple, and everything streamlined. you know they've They've really got a system that works so smoothly, you know they have the access to live scan, all that. So um, you know we are definitely working looking for other attorneys, though, to work with us, especially in different areas, you know, to work with a social equity applicant. So definitely, you know, even like accountants. Um, anything like that, where they can also be mentors to, you know, our social equity applicants.
1: That's very good to know. And yeah, I'd love to stay in touch with you about this. Um, and, and with our network, I think that this is something that people would be interested in, especially here in Arizona, where we have so many uh, government officials still fighting the medical cannabis Law so there's a really robust legal community here that is eager to work with organizations that are trying to push this push the criminal justice equity and the social equity forward in the state. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see see what happens. But and I'm sure that um, people listening in other states as well where they're really trying to push forward cannabis regulation uh, on their statewide level, would be really interested to get involved as well and see see how there can be some synergies to push some of these uh, new regulations forward. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think that the environment in the Department of Justice in the last couple of years has really been closed off to all of this, but I'm hoping that with the election and with so many candidates favoring criminal justice reform, and particularly where it concerns cannabis, I think that we it's possible that we could see some reform on the federal level if we go in that direction. Because if, if it doesn't go in that direction, it's going to be very difficult, I think, to push anything through on a, on a national level until we get a more amenable group of congresspeople and senators in office who, who will push it forward. Absolutely. And who aren't afraid of standing up to the special interests that are fighting this. Because I really think it does go back to that. I agree. And at least here, <laughs> private prisons, alcohol industry, the pharmaceutical industry, <laughs> corn and soy, or biofuels. I mean, it, it's just, it's everywhere. And that's a big monster to have to tackle, I think. Mm-hmm. But, oh, absolutely. Yeah. But I think with organizations like yours who are really pushing this out into the public eye, I foresee change in the near future. So it's very encouraging. It's very encouraging to hear what you're doing. And um, so any other things that you'd like our audiences to know? Well, you know, if there are in other states, I definitely want them to reach out because, you know, we can assist
2: in, you know, um, creating that social equity kind of framework for them and help them shape um, and give them support. And you know, bringing that up to their politicians and you know get, get, getting someone to sponsor a bill, so I mean all that's very important because we have Senator Curtis out of uh, Ferguson, Missouri, that is shaping that uh, social equity bill in Missouri, so they're looking to have that already in place when they do go legal, which should be next year, and they lost the vote before, but I think they're going to go ahead and this round and and legalize so and having that social equity Built in place already, it just it just makes just a world of difference. So of how it's going to roll out. So yeah. So if there's any you know anybody that's in other states and you know they have any questions, they want to know how to get in, um, what they need to do to um, assist in pushing social equity forward in their states, their cities, whatever. Definitely reach out because we're on a, we work on a national level.
1: I was very encouraged to hear what's going on in Missouri it seems like they have a a robust advocacy there as well. And I believe it's Proposition 2 that's on the ballot. I think it'll help so many people there. You know, it's really difficult to imagine what it's like to live in a state that has absolutely zero regulation on cannabis these days with all that we know and with all that's available online. You know, how can a patient in Idaho who knows that cannabis could help them with a the condition sit by and realize that they have zero access or zero legal access, I should say, because just about anyone anywhere can get illegal cannabis if they really want it. But it's it's astonishing. And it, it must put people into this really sorry state knowing that they could be helped, but they can't get legal access. So, uh It's necessary to human health as we're learning, so (laughs) we'll see. It's necessary to our economy, too. And I think that the success that we've seen in these states that are legal now, the economic upside is so great that these more conservative states cannot ignore that. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with these new measures that are on the ballot this year and also with Canada. I'm I'm really encouraged to see an entire country legalize on a national level in our hemisphere. So that should provide even more proof, the proof we need for our government to start acting on it. So, yeah, it's really interesting. Well, Benita, I am very delighted that you were able to um, join me for this interview. And I, I thank you for the work that you're doing and... I thank you for taking the time to talk to us about this. I think your work is important. and Yeah, I really appreciate the support, and, you know, you having me on the show and creating more awareness, you know,
2: for people of color. That's just
1: awesome. <laughs> You're certainly welcome. You know, we look forward to supporting it in any way that we can. So um, hopefully we can stay in touch and please feel free to send any content you'd like us to uh, put out with our network because we've got a sizable uh, network of advocates who are eager to help other organizations to push this movement forward. So I just say, thank you. Thank you.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Thank you. <laughs> You're certainly welcome.
2: You know, again, I appreciate you having me on the show. And I look forward to, uh, you know, being on again at some point when things develop. And, you know, I'll keep you abreast on what's going on. And, you know, people can keep up with what we're doing on, you know, our social media. Yeah, if you can just throw
1: that up there so people have access, that would be great. I'd appreciate it. Thank you, Bonita. Oh, so it is time to bring yet another show to a close. Once again, I'd like to personally thank my guest, Bonita Money, for sharing her insights and knowledge with us today. If you'd like to learn more about the work that she's doing at Indica or at Women Above Ground, please visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com, click podcast to find today's episode, And I'll post her bio along with information and links to her websites. We have so many people to thank. First, I would like to express our gratitude for our radio sponsors, Canisphere Biotech and Healthtera. We certainly couldn't be doing this without you. I'd also like to thank Eric Goodall, the composer of our theme song, and the team here at the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show for making us shine. And it always goes without saying how much we appreciate our programming directors at XRQK Radio Network and Society Bites Radio for distributing our show. And last but not least, thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Snowden Bishop, inviting you to join me again next week, same time, same place, for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. Until we meet again, be safe, stay informed share what you've learned and make it a great day
0: Now that doctors and patients have discovered the many benefits of hemp-derived CBD, Alpine Miracle's Nano Emulsion CBD Formula is one of the most bioavailable on the market today. It's 100% THC-free, so you can order it online anywhere in the U.S. Order yours today at alpinemiracle.com scientists are just beginning to understand its essential role in maintaining optimal health. Get yours today. Use the code REPORTER and receive 10% off. Don't wait. Get it now at alpinemiracle.com. You're listening to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop, You're busy. Running around from work to kids to evening events, healthcare shouldn't be adding to your daily running around. Simplify your healthcare with Helterra. For only $15 per month per individual or $18 per month per family with up to nine kids, by the way, you can eliminate doctor office visits with 24 7 access to doctors via phone, video, or the mobile app. Not only do you get prescriptions filled over the phone, but save up to 85% on those prescriptions. This is a supplemental plan and not insurance. Healthcare made easy. Helterra.com.